Welcome back to our series on the book of Revelation, Certain Comfort in Uncertain Times. We are in the middle of Christ's letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Over the past two weeks, we looked at a letter to a loveless church, which was Christ's oracle to the church at Ephesus, and a letter to a suffering church, which is Christ's oracle to the church at Smyrna. And today we're going to look at a letter to an idolatrous church, Christ's letter to the church at Pergamum. A number of years ago, I made several short-term mission trips to Russia, and my first trip was in 1998, just a few years after the wall had come down and the former Soviet Union had opened up to the West. And on that trip, half of the team had stayed behind in a city where the ministry was already established and, and did some missions work there. And the other half of the team had gone into another city uh, to try to establish inroads for the ministry and for the gospel there. And that city had been a stronghold for the communist regime during the Soviet Union. And the team hadn't been there for 24 hours before they started to be harassed by government officials, by Orthodox church officials, and even had their passports taken until they agreed to leave the city and not come back. And as we debriefed from this incident with the, the local Russian churches and the believers that we were working with, it was really their conviction that one of the reasons why the city was so opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ was because they had been idolatrous toward the state, that they had really worshipped the state as God and worshipped the communist regime as God in that city. And unfortunately, we see something similar going on in Revelation chapter 2 in the church at Pergamum in the passage we'll look at today. And so follow along as I read verses 12 through 17 of Revelation chapter 2. Jesus tells John, Write to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Thus says the one who has the sharp double-edged sword, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Yet you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death among you where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, so repent. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, I will also give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. I'm going to give a little bit of a warning here right off the bat that I might ruffle some feathers today, um, not intentionally, but because of what the Word of God says. I've been preaching this passage at the Colony of Mercy uh, prior to recording it for this podcast. There are actually a couple of weeks ahead of those of you watching it at home. And when I finished preaching this passage, um, something I hadn't touched on, one of our, our residents had picked up on and came and asked about the fact that each of these, these letters, Jesus says, let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. And that phrase really is important as we go through, through these letters because it really tells us that these 
our messages not just to seven historical first century churches, but to all of us, wherever we are, because we are among those who have ears to hear. And so Jesus is urging us to, for us who have ears to hear, to listen to what the Spirit is saying to these seven churches. And I think even though we might view uh, our situation in 21st century America as being different than first century Pergamum or even different than 20th century Soviet Union, there is a lot here in this passage uh, that speaks right to the church in 21st century America. And so just like we have the past two weeks, I have one major point for this message, and I'm going to give it to you right off the bat, and then we'll unpack it in our remaining time. And that is that we can worship Jesus or the world, but never both. We can worship Jesus or the world, but never both. In verse 13, Jesus says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Yet you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death among you, where Satan lives. These I know sections of these letters are where Jesus commends and encourages the churches for something. And what Jesus commends the church at Pergamum for is remaining faithful even in the midst of persecution. He specifically mentions a man named Antipas who was faithful to the point of death. And this does seem to be something that the church experienced in the past, since he says that they were faithful even in the days of this martyr. Um, but it is something the church had been successful in persevering, that they seem to have experienced that level of persecution. But it does not seem to have lasted a prolonged amount of time. But the fact that martyrs appear to have been rare enough that only one man is mentioned as though he was a standout, that maybe he was the only one who actually was martyred in this church, does not mean that the church in Pergamum had not actually suffered. Indeed, Jesus says that Pergamum is the city where Satan both lives and reigns, which tells us that the opposition for the church in Pergamum must have been fierce. And of course, the question is, what made Pergamum unique to the point that out of all of the churches that Jesus writes to, they're the ones that live in the city where Satan lives and where his throne was. There are a number of possibilities that people have come up with. Um, one possibility is that they had a huge altar to Zeus, the savior, that stood on the Acropolis. Another one is that they had a shrine to Asclepius, the god of healing and medicine, whose symbol was a serpent. Or it could have been to the fact that these were far from the only two temples in Pergamum, and that in addition to Zeus and Asclepius, the city also worshipped Dionysus and Athena as well. But I think all of these possibilities really missed the mark because none of them really set Pergamum apart. Lots of cities had tons of shrines and worshipped Zeus and Asclepius and Athena and Dionysus and all sorts of Roman gods. Pergamum was not unique in having all of these temples, nor would the worship of these gods provoke a unique level of persecution for Christians there as opposed to Christians in other cities because none of these gods really demanded any level of exclusivity in their worship. There was one area, however, 
where Pergamum was very unique and which would have produced a more intense level of persecution for them as opposed to Christians in other cities. And that is the fact that Pergamum was the capital of Asia Minor and as such it was the seat of the region's Roman governor. It was regarded as the most important Roman city in the area and the city's aristocracy was able to reach the highest circles of power in Rome itself. And it was also an economically important city for both the region and the empire. But more importantly, Pergamum boasted the very first temple dedicated to an emperor, built in 29 BC and dedicated to the worship of Caesar Augustus. And from that time on, the imperial cult, the worship of the emperor, was stronger in Pergamum than in any city in the area. And it continued to be so in the time that John was writing Revelation. And in fact, a few years after the book is written, the city of Pergamum erects a, a second temple dedicated to the worship of an emperor, this time Emperor Trajan. And so really it was the Christians' refusal to worship the emperor more so than their refusal to worship Zeus or any of the other gods that marked Christians for persecution. And in Pergamum, it was the emperor more so than any other god whose claims rivaled those made by Jesus Christ. And so Pergamum was the place where Satan lived because it was a place where the imperial cult was the strongest. It was the place where Satan's throne was because it was the place where the temple to the emperor was built. Pergamum was a place that worshipped not just many gods. Every city in the area worshipped many gods. Pergamum was unique in that they worshipped the emperor and demanded that all their citizens worship him as well. This can even be seen in how Jesus introduces himself to the city. He says he is the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. And remember that sword was the symbol of Roman might. The Roman Republic was long gone by this point, and the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, was in many ways a mere myth. Rome ruled by the sword. The empire was at peace not because everyone just loved each other so, but because people lived in constant fear of the sword. There was a reason why Rome loved crucifixion as its preferred method of execution because it was public and de dehumanizing. People would have seen these public executions and known this is what happens if you challenge the Roman will. And so in claiming to be the one that wields the sword, Jesus positions himself not in opposition to the Roman pantheon, the Roman collection of gods, but rather he positions himself in opposition to the Roman state. The Roman state, by means of the Roman emperor, was being worshipped as the savior, as the giver of life and of rights, as the sovereign of all things. And yet Jesus, of course, says otherwise. He comes to this church and reminds them that he is the one who wields the sword. He is the one in control. He is the savior, the giver of life and of rights. He is the sovereign over all. And it can be strikingly similar to even our own position in the United States. And of course, we might object that we are free, that we are not forced to worship any other God that we don't choose. But even in our own day, 
politicians galore on both sides of the aisle are perfectly content to let the church worship Jesus as long as we worship them as well. As long as we bow down before them, as long as we honor them as the church's savior, as the one who gives us and protects our religious liberty. As long as we recognize their accomplishments, as long as we swear our loyalty to them. And this is where Jesus starts to shift from his encouragement to the church at Pergamum in verse 13 to his rebuke of the church at Pergamum in verses 14 through 15. Because yes, the church at Pergamum had been persecuted physically, uh, even at least in one instance to the point of death due to their refusal to worship the emperor. But over time, after that physical persecution ended, at least some in the church had actually succumbed to this idolatry that was characteristic of the city as a whole. The church had begun to join in the worship of the emperor. And verses 14 and 15, Jesus says, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Jesus accuses the church, or at least some in the church, of holding to the teaching of Balaam, who put a stumbling block in front of the Israelites. And you might recognize that name Balaam. He shows up in the book of Numbers. He's the one whose donkey starts to talk to him when he's refusing to hear from God. And Balaam had apparently shown the Moabites how to lead Israel into idolatry so that God's anger would burn against them. And that comes up in Numbers 31, 16, where it says, Yet they are the ones, speaking of the Moabites, who at Balaam's advice incited the Israelites to unfaithfulness against the Lord in the Peor incident, so that the plague came against the Lord's community. And we find out what that Peor incident is back in Numbers 25, verses 1 and 3, where it says, While Israel was staying in the Acacia Grove, the people began to prostitute themselves with the women of Moab. The women invited them to the sacrifices for their gods, and the people ate and bowed in worship to their gods. So Israel aligned itself with Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against Israel. And so the fact that the church at Pergamum had people holding to the teaching of Balaam tells us that the church had people who were leading the church into temple prostitution, leading the church into idol worship. Second Peter also associates Balaam with false teachers in the church. And Second Peter 2, verses 15 through 19, says they have gone astray by abandoning the straight path and have followed the path of Balaam, the son of Bozor, who loved the wages of wickedness, but received the rebuke for his lawlessness. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These people are springs without water, mist driven by a storm. The gloom of darkness has been reserved for them. For by uttering boastful, empty words, they seduce with fleshly desires and debauchery, people who have barely escaped from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption, since people are enslaved to whatever defeats them. 
And so we see that in many ways, the church at Pergamum was struggling with the opposite problem as the church at Ephesus. Back at the beginning of Revelation 2, we saw that the church at Ephesus was zealous in guarding the truth, but had not love. The church at Pergamum, on the other hand, was tolerant and accepting, but could not discern a false teacher from a biblical one. And so they had departed from the faith. And here is where Jesus' rebuke might hit a little too close to home, because when they were experiencing one form of persecution, a physical persecution, they stayed faithful to Christ, even to the point, at least in one instance, of them being martyred. And yet once their pocketbook started to be hit, all of a sudden they became open to compromising with the state, compromising with false teachers. Suddenly they weren't so opposed to sexual immorality. Suddenly they weren't so opposed to putting the state, putting the emperor in the position of God. And Jesus, although he had praised them for holding on his, to his name and remaining faithful even in the days of persecution, he now rebukes them because they had not continued to do so. Remaining faithful in the past and not in the present was not something that was extremely praiseworthy for the church. They had not continued guarding the truth as the Ephesians had done. And instead they departed from the truth. And they had begun eating meat sacrificed to idols and committing sexual immorality. Now this wasn't merely the fact that they were struggling perhaps with what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians of uh, not giving consideration to the weaker brother. Uh, nor was it just people struggling with sexual bondage and sexual sin. Rather what John is getting at, what, what Jesus is getting at, at through John is really what it talks about in Acts 15, where uh, if you remember, Paul's ministry had been so effective in the Gentile areas, and Gentiles were coming to faith in Christ, and the question naturally arose, well, how do they interact with the Jewish faith? Do they need to become Jews first before they can become Christians? Do they need to be circumcised? Do they need to keep all of the Old Testament law? And so the church had gathered in Acts 15 at the first church council, the Council of Jerusalem, and the church then wrote a letter out to all the Gentile churches. And it closes in Acts 15, verses 28 through 29, by saying, For it was the Holy Spirit's decision and ours not to place further burdens on you beyond these requirements, that you abstain from food offered to idols, from blood, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. You will do well if you keep yourselves from these things. And Paul, of course, elaborates on this in 1 Corinthians 8 as that issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols came up. And Paul allows Christians in Corinth to eat that meat as long as it was on sale in the marketplace and did not cause a weaker brother to stumble. But they were forbidden from eating that meat as part of the ritual feasts and festivals that took place at the temples in the worship of those gods. Because at that point, Christians were participating in the worship of the idol and not just exercising their freedom of conscience. And that seems to be what was taking place in Pergamum. They were participating in the worship of idols. It wasn't that they were eating meat sacrificed to idols privately in their home, as Paul allows in 1 Corinthians 8. And it wasn't even that they were, again, just living in sexual immorality or struggling with sexual sin. It's that they were doing both of those things at the temples in the context of the worship 
of idols. Most likely the worship of the emperor and therefore the worship of the Roman state. And there's specific mention of meat sacrifice to idols and of sexual immorality is meaningful precisely because it not only violates the apostles' instructions in Acts 15, but because those were the activities that were part of the ritual feasts and festivals in the temple worship. And these feasts and festivals would have been thrown by the city's trade guilds. And so not only had Pergamum failed where Ephesus remained faithful in the defense of truth, but they had also failed where Smyrna remained faithful in being willing to become poor for the sake of the gospel. The church at Smyrna, as we saw last time in Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11, was poor because their faith had caused them to lose their place in society, namely among the city's trade guilds, leaving them unable to make a living. And the church at Pergamum was facing a similar situation. They were not attending the ritual feasts and festivals at the temples thrown by the trade guilds. And the trade guilds were keeping track of which of their members were there to worship the emperor and which ones weren't. And when the Christians failed to show up, they were apparently being thrown out of the trade guilds. They were apparently losing their livelihood. And the church at Pergamum was apparently led to believe by false teachers that their Christian freedom meant that they could compromise the gospel and worship the emperor in order to keep their place in their trade guilds so that they would not become poor. And so in many ways, what the church at Pergamum is guilty of was of worshiping their country and their wallets. And this, brothers and sisters, is precisely why I said I might ruffle some feathers back at the beginning, because I cannot think of two things that the church in America is more tempted to worship other than Jesus than our country and our wallets. And notice that Jesus gives the same solution, the same command to Pergamum that he did to Ephesus. Repent. Change your mind. Change your direction. Stop pursuing that thing. Turn around and pursue me instead. And so Ephesus was told to stop pursuing truth without love and instead come back to the love that they had at first. And Pergamum is told to stop pursuing their country and their wallets. Stop pursuing economic prosperity. Stop pursuing political freedom and come back and worship me instead. Whether we are lacking in love or compromising truth, Jesus calls us to the same thing, repentance, a complete change of mind and direction. But notice the or else that Jesus gives the church at Pergamum. Because it, there it differs than he gave the church at Ephesus. To Ephesus, Jesus had said to repent or he would remove their lampstand. In other words, the church would cease to exist. To Pergamum, however, Jesus says to repent or else he will come quickly and fight against them. Against the false teachers and idolaters within the church. With the sword of his mouth. In other words, if the church was unwilling to purge idolatry from its midst, Jesus would do it but he would leave the faithful in the church. And this again, as we read through Revelation 2, and if we read it consecutively without stopping, we're reminded again of the priority that Jesus, and in fact the whole of the New Testament, puts on love. 
because the solution is the same for both Ephesus and Pergamum, repentance. But the promised judgment if repentance didn't occur was much harsher for Ephesus, the city lacking love, than it was for Pergamum, the church that was compromising the truth. The church accommodating false teachers would be purged of them, but the church refusing to love would cease to be a church. And of course, this doesn't mean that we should compromise the truth, but it should remind us that we can't boast about our allegiance to the truth of God if we aren't also displaying the love of God. Remember, it was John's gospel where Jesus had said that by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Love was the defining characteristic of the church. So the church that had not love was not a church. But here in Pergamum, the church was compromising the truth with some false teachers, but there was some remaining in the church who held to the gospel. And Jesus said, I will purge the false teachers, but those who hold to the gospel will remain. A compromise of the truth leaves us open to judgment, but a lack of love leaves us open to eradication. And it is judgment that we leave ourselves open to when we compromise the truth. Notice how Jesus describes his sword. It is the sword of his mouth. Back in Revelation 1, in the vision that John has of Jesus, he had described Jesus as having seven stars in his right hand. A sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. He describes it similarly later on in Revelation, in Revelation chapter 19, verse 15, where he says, A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. We're a people of war, and so we like the image of Jesus returning and wielding a sword against his enemies, cutting them down violently in battle. But the sword of judgment in Revelation is always protruding from Jesus' mouth. In other words, the sword is his word. And this really shouldn't surprise us because that's how it's described for us as well. In Ephesians chapter 6, the famous chapter on spiritual warfare, we're told to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Similarly, back in the Old Testament, Isaiah 49 verse 2 says, He made my words like a sharp sword. He hid me in the shadow of his hand. He made me like a sharpened arrow. He hid me in his quiver. Of course, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And this is what Jesus is speaking of to the church at Pergamum. If they did not repent, if they did not turn from their idolatry, from their false teachers, then his word would come in judgment against them. John Bunyan is reported to have said, either this book, speaking of the Bible, will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. And Jesus is saying something very similar, that if we depart from the word of God, then we will be judged by the word of God. The word of God is the prevention for idolatry, but it is also the antidote for idolatry. And if we don't take it as an antidote when we failed to prevent it, to take it as a preventative, then it will be the judgment of idolatry 
as well. Jesus will fight against false teachers with the sword from his mouth, which is the word of God. The word of God is the standard that all teachers, false or otherwise, must be compared to. And then finally, in verse 17, Jesus says, Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. The one who conquers or the one who overcomes in Ephesus was the one who repents and returns to the love that they had at first. The one who overcame in Smyrna was the one who endures the trials of poverty and persecution. And the one who overcomes in Pergamum is the one who repents of their compromise and syncretism with the world around them and returns to trusting and worshiping Jesus alone. And to the one who overcomes, Jesus promises hidden manna and a white stone inscribed with a new name. The meaning of these two rewards has been discussed and debated for centuries because we're not completely sure of the background that John's readers would have inherently understood as living in that culture. But I do think the context provides us with some clues. The church at Pergamum was compromising and committing idolatry in order to preserve their livelihood. They didn't want to be kicked out of the trade guild, so they were participating in the idolatrous feasts and orgies that the guilds were throwing in worship of the emperor. They were worshiping the emperor and the state, really trusting them to provide them with their daily bread. And so Jesus' promise is that the one who remains faithful, the one who repents of idolatry and returns to worshiping Jesus will be provided with manna, the food miraculously provided for the Israelites by God as they wandered in the wilderness. In other words, the promise of manna is a promise of divine provision. Jesus is reminding the church at Pergamum and really reminding the church in America as well that we can rely on him for our daily bread regardless of whether the state allows us to earn a living or not. He's reminding us that we must look and should look not to the president or to Congress or the state for our daily bread, but to God and God alone. But the reference to hidden manna could also be another reference to the word of God. Manna was placed into the Ark of the Covenant alongside the tablets of the law. And we see at various points in scripture, such as Jeremiah 15, 16, where the prophet says, your words were found and I ate them. Your words became a delight to me and the joy of my heart, for I bear your name, Lord God of armies. Or of course, as Jesus was tempted in the wilderness in Matthew chapter four, verses three and four, the tempter approached him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so by promising the church at Pergamum hidden manna, Jesus is reminding them that they do not live by bread alone, that they should be as concerned with living according to the word of God as they are with acquiring their daily sustenance 
especially when it comes by worshiping the emperor or the state or any other form of idolatry. And as for the white stones, stones with one's name written on them were often used as tickets to get into these feasts and festivals thrown by the trade guilds. And so these members of the church of Pergamum, as they were going to the temple to worship the emperor by eating the meat sacrificed to him and by participating in the temple prostitution, in order to get in, they would have had to present a stone with their name on it that signified that they were part of this guild and could be at this feast and festival. And the fact that here in Revelation, the promises of a white stone with a new name written on it are most likely references to the new creation and new righteousness of those who are in Christ. The implication seems to be that instead of trying to get this ticket into the temple worship in order to get our daily bread, if we would decline that, we will be given a ticket to get into the coming marriage supper of the Lamb. And so Jesus comes to the church at Pergamum reminding them that they could either worship Him or the world, Him or the state, Him or the emperor, the president, the political system, the political party. But they could never worship both. As Scripture repeatedly reminds us, we cannot serve two masters because we will either love the one or hate the other. We will ultimately always look to one of them for our protection and our provision. And really, that is what Jesus is getting at as much of Scripture gets at, that where we look for provision and protection really tells us who our God is. But in the current age that we live, if we're really being honest with ourselves, we are often guilty of looking to the emperor and the state for protection and provision, just as the church at Pergamum did. We are much more likely to use the political process to try and secure our freedoms, our religious liberties, our 501c3 status than we are to pray for those things. And we are much more likely to laud the president or Congress or whoever else it is for giving us those freedoms than we are to give praise to the one who is the actual giver of life and of rights. And so Jesus calls us to repent just as he called the church at Pergamum to repent. He calls us to return to worshiping him alone, trusting in him for our daily bread and celebrating not our access to the Oval Office, but our admission to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Thank you for joining us as we looked at Christ's letter to the church at Pergamum. And join us again next week when we continue on in Christ's letters to the seven churches.